Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let's pray one more time. Lord God, we bless you and we ask you to send your spirit in this place. Lord, help us as we open your word and be confronted with what all happened leading up to Easter. God, be be in our hearts, convict us, and be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, um, about a year ago, Adam and I were discussing what was going to happen with our mission teams this year, and I asked if this year that spring break I would not be on mission. Uh, last year I went on a lot of trips and this year I felt like I needed to be with my kids and so we made the decision that I would be uh, on spring break this week and that was long before we realized that 63 people were going to be going to Guatemala. So yesterday liked to kill me watching this biggest team that Rosemont has ever seen leave and me not be able to get on that bus. Um, but we're excited that they're in capable hands between Philip and Adam. I'm sure there's going to be some great stories by the time they get back. But um, he asked me to preach. He said I could continue the Genesis sermon or I could do something on my own. And um, just to be honest, the week before Easter every year I find myself wanting to dwell on Christ. Wanting to dwell on what led up to the Easter story. Uh, We know most of the time that I operate in the worldview, I don't know about you, but I have to sit and dwell on the fact that that it is finished and I am forgiven and I'm a child of the king and it's all going to be okay and heaven is secure because I've accepted Christ. And so most of the time I spend myself reminding myself that, that it's all going to be okay. And that is true. But this week I want to remind us and, 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 and in studying this remind myself of the cost that had to be paid so that I might not take it for granted. And so this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. And we're going to pick up the story of Christ's life as he turns from his ministry towards the cross. If y'all could pull these front lights down just a little bit, that would help me. Thank you. Um, As he turns towards the cross and his journey to the cross, hopefully this will prepare our hearts as we get ready to celebrate next week, that yes, he has risen from the grave. Uh, a lot of times I equate the Christian life to, to that of the farmer asking um, for breakfast. He asks for eggs and bacon, and the chicken has to offer what? Eggs, that's right, out of the mouth of babes. And the, and the pig has to offer what? Bacon. The chicken's sacrifice is how big? Small. The pig sacrifices how big? He gives it all. He has to give it all. I'm still getting way too much right here. Thank you. Sorry. I can't see. Um, When I think about Christ, and when I think about what's happening for him in order to go to the cross, and why he had to die on my behalf, it, it affects me. And this morning we're going to pick up the story as, as Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he's completed the Passover meal. He's 
met with the disciples. He's shared the Lord's Supper with them. He's explained to them the betrayal that's about to happen. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Have you ever thought about when you have special occasions, when things happen in your life, who it is that you gather around you? When, when our kids' birthdays get close, they, they get out a piece of paper and a crayon, and they begin writing down who it is that they want at their party. Who it is that, 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 that they, de, they desire to be there for their special day. You know, when I think about when Hannah and I were getting married, the miracle of that day, right? <laughs> Somebody knows me. Okay, so Hannah begins to make the list of all of the girlfriends that she just had to have as a bridesmaid. The day would not be complete unless they were there for her. I know that y'all might think this is morbid, but I sit and think about funerals, and I think about my own funeral, and I think about who it is that might be a pallbearer at my funeral. You know, when I was in high school, I assumed that I was going to be friends with everybody I graduated with for the rest of my life. Well, that was been a long time ago, and some of those people have kind of drifted along by the wayside. Even some of my groomsmen at my wedding, I'm not as close to as I used to be. But there are men that are still in my life today that are brothers that I would die for. And those are the people that I assume at this moment would be willing to be pallbearers for me. And when I think about what Christ is doing here, when I think about here he is... Facing the biggest crisis he will ever face that will end in his death. And he finds himself surrounded by just the disciples. And among them he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, in even a little bit further, a little bit closer. You see the crowds that had welcomed him into the city, the crowds that had followed him throughout his ministry, the crowds that enjoyed watching him do miracles had disappeared. But now, in the garden, he had these men. In one way, Christ was needing to be surrounded by those closest to him. But in another way, he was giving and teaching them one last lesson and example to them. That when tough times come, and they're going to come in your life, that that you need fellowship and encouragement, and you need the prayers of believers. And we see him gathering with these men and asking them to pray with him. 
You know, we know that Scripture teaches that we are to encourage one another and to pray for one another. Hebrews 10 tells us, let us consider how to stir one another up towards good works. Not neglecting the meeting together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, when I think about Christ, he saw the day approaching. He knew exactly what was about to happen. And in that moment, he found himself gathering some friends to pray. Isn't it sad that for you and I, that so many times when troubles begin to come, when when crisis begins to hit, that sometimes we're so reluctant to ask for others to help us, ask for others to pray for us. We want everybody to assume that everything in our house is good, that everything with our kids is good, that everything with our marriage is good, that everything in our job is good. And so in order to keep that facade, we keep things really close because we don't want to tell the truth and ask for that prayer. When we get to true crisis, then we do call out. Many times Adam and I have talked about the issues that have come up and people that, that land in our office and all of a sudden their lives are in turmoil and we're like, why did you not find brothers earlier? Why didn't you find counsel from Scripture before now? The obvious implication here also is that sometimes friends will let us down, right? Sometimes there's those people that you ask to do something and they don't come through. That can be very disappointing, and that's what Christ encountered here. Can you just sit here and pray for me? And he goes away, and he prays, and he comes back, and they're what? Asleep. He asks them again, pray for me. He goes away, and he comes back, and they are asleep. But, but Christ knew, and just as we, knew, we know as well, that even though friends might not be who we want them to be, and they might let us down, that the Lord never fails us. We see one attribute in this, this, this story of him in the garden, and that is one of sorrow. We see Christ being sorrowful. Now, just a few hours ago, he was in the upper room, and there was joy, and there was peace, and there was calm. They had, they had sung a hymn together, and we know that they had rejoiced and had the Lord's Supper. But now the feast is over, and the sacrifice was imminent for them He knew what was next. In verse 38 we see, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. Now many people throughout the years have faced death. Many people that we know have been on their deathbed. Many people that we know have even faced execution. Surely the criminal to his right and to his left were facing the same fate that Christ was. So why is this any different? Well Christ was facing a physical death just as like those criminals were. But he was also facing a spiritual death as well. You see, he was going to face damnation. He was going to face separation from God. He was going to grapple with Satan in order to destroy death itself. The sins of the world were at stake. And eternity was on the line. Jesus knew all along that he had come to die. This was no surprise to him. Jesus had dealt with Satan before. This wasn't the first battle. This was going to be the final battle for him and Satan. Jesus had explained his pending death to the disciples. But now in the garden he was faced with this truth. That God was withdrawing from him. He was experiencing distance from the Father. He was left alone. 
He had preached his last sermon. He had performed his last miracle. He had celebrated his last Passover. He knew he'd come to become the Passover lamb. The perfect and only sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we see three aspects of his sorrow here. And the first one is, is that he was sinless. And yet he was about to encounter sin for the first time. And not only was he going to encounter sin, but the sins of the entire world were going to be placed on his shoulders. Unfathomable that the sinless Christ was about to encounter sin. The second thing we see is that he was about to deal with Satan in one final battle. One battle that he was going to win and he was going to be victorious over and that we will claim for the rest of our days and we will proclaim to the nations until Christ comes back to reclaim the bride. But he was going to do battle with Satan. And the third one, which is even more upsetting, is that he was about to receive the wrath of a holy God. You know, we talk about God being loving and God is love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. But he sent his son that he might pour out his wrath against sin. The truth is, is that God hates sin. There must be punishment for sin. There must be payment for sin. And the wrath of God, the vengeance against sin was about to be poured out all in one place on the son of God. And Christ was sorrowful in that moment. We see that he was not only sorrowful, but he was submissive as well. We see submission in Christ. We see obedience in Christ. Even in this moment as he is facing the cross. Look in verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Every moment of Jesus' life, from his first cry to the last cry on the cross, he had lived in total submission to the Heavenly Father. And through this sinless submission, he became the high priest who understands and sympathizes with our weakness, who was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. We see Christ obeying the Father's plan for redemption. For redeeming us from our sins, from purchasing us, purchasing us from, from our sinful life in order that we might be forgiven and have new life. Even as it cost him his own life. Now why did this have to happen? Why did he have to die? Why is it so important that Jesus hung on a cross? Because this is pivotal to what we believe as Christians. Well, I remind you of the gospel, the gospel that we celebrate every day of our life, that we definitely celebrate this week and next Sunday. And that is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're going through the book of Genesis. Adam is teaching us about original sin and how Adam sinned in the garden. And since then, we were all born sinful. You and I know that we've fallen, that we've sinned, that we've missed the mark, that we are not perfect, that we are not holy. And so, therefore, we have sinned. We also know that God so loved the world that he sent his son. So what makes Easter so remarkable is the Heavenly Father is the one who sent Christ to to this place. Knowing that he would go to the cross to be our sacrifice. 
We know from Scripture, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. All the Old Testament taught us that there had to be a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice had to be made to atone for sin. And now there's going to be this ultimate sacrifice, this one perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Christ was going to go to the cross and die in order to pay for our sins, for you and I to be able to look God in the face and not be condemned. Christ had to die. For by one man's disobedience, that was Adam in the, garden, in the Garden of Eden, the many were made sinners. But by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we find our righteousness. We may not feel righteous. We might know that we still stumble. But the reality is, is because of this act of obedience, because of this submission to the Heavenly Father, you and I, if we have trusted in Christ, have the promise that one day we will be in heaven and enjoy the Father forever. Never for a moment did Christ falter in his obedience to the Father. Never for a moment did he falter in his submission to the Father. Never for a moment did he doubt or cease to love the Father. Never for a moment did he cease to, to, to trust the truth of the Father. Never for a moment did he doubt the Father's justice or actions. Christ was well aware of the divine wrath. And he had total trust in God in that moment. There was no turning away from the commission that he had been given by the Father to come and be the sacrifice. His obedience was total and unwavering. He came to die for the sins of the world. He came to die for you. He came so that you might have the opportunity to be forgiven of your sins. Yet we see him in the garden praying, Lord, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours. Lord, if there's any other way that we can do this, I'm open to those suggestions. But, but let me be clear, Lord, no, not my will. Whatever it is that you want of me, I will do it. I trust you. I love you. I submit to your plan. Oh, what we can learn here about the submission to the Lord. What we can learn from trusting God and doing as he says, even when it might not make sense was listening to Francis Chan this week and he was talking about the church and how it is that the church can hear the word of God, that we can read the word of God, we can study the word of God, we can know the commands of God and yet we can still struggle to do what it is that we've been called to do. He gave an illustration about him and his daughter. He said, I can as a father look at my daughter and say, I want you to go to your room and I want you to clean your room. He says she got up and walked out and I felt really good as a father. There she goes, submitting to me, obeying me. There she goes, she's going to clean her room. He says, what happens in two hours when she comes back to me? And she says, you know what? I gave a lot of thought about what you said. And I went to my room and I've been meditating on that. I've been thinking about that. She says, you know what? I even memorized what you said, Dad. You said you should go to your room and clean your room. Go to your room and clean your room. I memorized what you said. I even invited some friends over that we might study what you might have meant by that. <laughs> we mapped out a plan of what that might look like. And we got out a Greek lexicon and we looked up some of those words in Greek. 
He said, in that moment, I'm not as proud of my daughter. At that moment, I'm not saying that she has obeyed or been submissive to what I've asked her to do. And he said, so many times the church is just like that. We can come and hear the word of God. We can open God's word. We can know the commands that he's given us. And we can say, I've studied it and I've looked at it, but I don't know that I want to do it. Can I tell you that Christ understands that feeling? Because Christ is in the garden saying... So you're telling me the sins of the entire world and the wrath of God is about to be on my shoulders. I hear you, Lord, but I don't want to do it. But not my will. Father, your will be done. Can I tell you today that the example for you and I is to look into the Word of God and to hear from the voice of God and whatever it is that He's called us to do, to say, even if we don't desire to do it, not my will, but your will, because I trust your plan, because I trust that your ways will work, that your ways are higher than my way. And in this moment, I'm going to submit to you, my Father. We see a beautiful example for us as believers in how we are supposed to be living our lives. We see Christ was sorrowful and he was submitting to the Father. But there was also silence in that garden. It wasn't silence because the Father, because the Son wasn't calling out. He was calling out to the Lord. The silence came in the fact that the Lord wasn't answering. The Savior comes to the biggest crisis of his life and he does what he's always done. We see throughout Scripture that he drew away and prayed. That he found, found moments to pray. When the distractions got too much, he pulled away from the distractions of the world so that he might pray. Over and over we see Christ stopping to pray to the Father and to seek the Father's will in all things. This time was no exception. He's facing a crisis and he immediately pulls away to pray. The only difference was this time there was no response. What did Jesus do when, when there was no response, when he didn't hear from the Lord, when he lost that sense of the Father's presence, when he lost that sense of the Father's affection? In that moment, he continued to know him solely by faith. He trusted in who the Father always had been and who the Father always would be, and he stayed the course. In that moment when he didn't hear from the Lord, he continued to do what he knew the Lord had called him to do. There's so much for you and I to learn in the fact that sometimes we drift and we feel that we've not sensing the Lord's presence like we used to. Many times that's because sin separates us from God and we need to look into our hearts and we need to look into the mirror and we need to look into the word of God and ask him to know our hearts and know our ways and reveal to us what might reestablish that connection. But many times it's a matter of obedience and us trusting him and who he is and doing what he says is right in that moment. One of the beautiful things that we see from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is supplication or prayer we see Jesus in that garden he went there because it was his retreat it was his safe place it was that place that he communed with the father and he went there to pray look with me in verse 37 he began to be sorrowful and troubled then he said to them my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch with me and going a little further he fell on his face and prayed Saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup 
pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you couldn't watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. You see, the disciples found themselves unable or unwilling to be able to pray. They were, they were concerned about their rest. They were concerned about their circumstances. They didn't understand the spiritual battle that was going on around them. But the Lord did. And he couldn't help but run to the Father and pray and, and lay his heart out to the Father the way he always had before. Every time, interestingly enough, in Scripture that Jesus prayed, he used the word Father when he prayed. But in this time, this one instance, he used Abba, Father, or Daddy. He used the, most, the, the language that was the most personal in that moment so that he could call out to his Father. Now, I have three young kids, and we hear, Mommy, 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 Daddy, 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 all the time. And we hear that, Daddy, and you're like, you're still holding your phone, but you're like, yeah. But every once in a while in our house, you hear, Daddy! And it's like, uh (laughs) uh-oh. There's a different tone of voice there, right? And all of a sudden, they have my undivided attention. And I run to them because I don't know what in the world has just happened. (laughs) And we see Christ in the garden using this language, not Father, but Abba, Father. Daddy, Daddy, if there's any way that this could go, go away. Father. Begging, pleading, asking, Lord, if there's any way, but if not, I will obey. Now, Christ knew anything was possible. Christ knew that he still had the decision to make. We know from John 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, that I, because I lay down my life, and I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay down my life on my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, Christ could have refused. Christ could have made the decision not to do this. He knew in that moment that he had the choice. He wasn't asking God for permission, he was saying, God, help me know how it is that we might accomplish your plan, how we might redeem these people, how we might pay for this sin of the world. But not my will, but yours. Let's do it your way. You see, Christ knew his Old Testament, and he knew he was profoundly aware of the nature of the cup that he was being asked to drink, the cup of wrath that he was being given, and he prayed, if this is possible, let it pass. Agonizingly, he prayed to the Father. Interestingly enough, he prayed for an hour before he even came back to check on the disciples. I don't know if that convicts you, but it does me. Because I I can't tell you the last time I interceded for an hour to the Lord. But we see here that he's down on his knees begging to the Lord. Praying, God, speak to me. 
show me, help me, direct me. And literally not on his knees, but prostrate on his face, begging the Father. And we see him showing us what it means to need to hear from the Lord. We see the intensity of his desire to be in the center of God's will. Your Satan is involved and, and, and spiritual battles are real. They're real in our lives every day and they were real in the garden. The enemy wanted nothing more than to stop Christ from making this ultimate sacrifice. Satan knew that this act of obedience by Christ would be the end. They would seal the deal that he was defeated once for all. Satan entered Judas and he went out of the upper room to carry out that betrayal. We know that Satan had tempted Jesus to demand his rights in the wilderness, his right for food or protection or sovereignty. And certainly Satan was tempting the Son of Man again to say that he didn't deserve to suffer and that this wasn't fair. Satan was there, but Jesus was intent on going to the cross. Jesus had set his face on Jerusalem and nothing was stopping him. And now he had set his face on the cross and nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross either. You remember when Peter had said, Jesus, you'll never be crucified. And, and, and Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. He was saying, anything that stops me from doing the will of God, anything that stops me from the purpose which I have come to earth to do is of Satan, and I want nothing of it. Jesus knew his purpose. You know, wine is not made from grapes that are gathered in a bowl. Wine is made from grapes that are crushed. We know the same of Christ. Look with me in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2, we, we read of Christ. For he grew up before him like a, a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, that's the other thing that we see in the garden, and that is substitution. And the doctrine of substitution very easily is this, that we deserved death for our sins. The wages of sin is death, but the sins of the world were placed on Christ. And he died for you. He died so that you would not face that fate. 
That fact alone should prompt us to tears. That fact alone should leave us on our knees with gratitude. That fact alone should drive us outside of these walls to live differently this week, this month, this year, for the rest of our lives. If we understand the gospel and the price that was paid on the cross, and if we've accepted the forgiveness that comes through him, it has to affect us and overflow in our lives by proclaiming his love and his grace and his gospel to our last breath. He, Christ, took our curse upon himself so that he might satisfy God and give us this blessing to promise us heaven, to give us himself so that we might enjoy him forever. Christ came to preach the gospel on earth, but he also came so that he could die so that it would be a gospel to preach for the rest of time. In the Garden of Eden, we see Adam hiding because of his sin and God calling out to him, where are you? What has happened? But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Christ not hiding from anything, but saying, Lord, here am I. Speak to me. Tell me what you want. Show me where you want me to do, and I will do it. I will lay down my life for your people that you've called by your name. The good shepherd, that is Christ, laid down his life. For the sheep. In the garden we see Christ enduring our hell. So that we might enter into his heaven. He drank the cup of our wrath. So that we could have the cup of his salvation. Two cups. One was bitter but one was sweet. But one necessitated the other. Christ had before his eyes the the dreadful tribunal of God. The judge himself armed with the vengeance against the sins of the world. And now because of our sins, the load of it all was being placed on the shoulders of Christ, our substitute. In the end of this passage, in verse 45, we see the strength of God. Behold, pay attention to this. Then he came to the disciples and said... You can sleep later. The hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. There was nothing left on earth to do for Christ. He had obeyed in every way. He had come in order to die. He had found himself at the place where he had asked the Lord if there was another way and there was no answer. So his response to the men who were there was get up. Get up, my betrayer is coming. Let's go and meet him. The time has come. I'm going to do this. With this, with all the courage he could muster, Jesus made the final and ultimate act of commitment to the Heavenly Father and actually moved towards those who were coming to arrest him and ultimately kill him. How in the world could Christ respond like this? How in the world could he possibly be motivated to go towards the ones that he knew for a fact were coming to kill him? Well, we find that answer in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame. For the joy set before him, that is us, 
For the joy of redeeming His people so that they might be forgiven. For the joy of being obedient to the Father and bringing glory to the Father. He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How amazing it is. And then finally, we know the rest of the story throughout the rest of Matthew and the other Gospels. And that is that He was sentenced to death. We know the rest of the story in the fact that he was scourged and he was beaten and he was mocked and he was nailed to a cross and left to die. I watch, I don't know, most of you have probably seen The Passion of the Christ. If you've not seen this movie, I I encourage you this week, not sometime this week before Easter, watch The Passion of the Christ. It's free on Netflix. You You can just get it there. It's hard to watch. And the reality is, is it doesn't even come close to the truth of what it looked like for the sins of the world to be placed on one man. But it affects me and it causes me to remember that I've been left here to live differently because of the price that was paid so that I could rejoice in the fact that next Sunday the tomb will be empty because he's risen and he's seated at the right hand of God interceding on my behalf. But the reality is, is if you're in this room today and you've heard this story, but you haven't accepted the fact that Christ died for your sins, you know that you've sinned against God, but you've not accepted that in your own life, that that promise is empty for you. You can accept Him if you ask Him to forgive you of your sins. For the rest of us in this room, for those of us who are believers in Him... I pray that this morning has stirred your heart and will affect you this week. As you encounter trials, as you are faced with the need to be praying and interceding and begging the Father to do something on your behalf. As you encounter those that you need to invite to come to church with you next Sunday and to celebrate the risen Savior and to hear the gospel possibly for the first time. And I pray for all of us that we would not look into the Word of God. And not walk away with actions that bring him glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, we look at this story of Christ and we're so overwhelmed with the price that was paid so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And God, this morning we pray that your spirit would convict us of areas of our life that we haven't laid over to you. Areas of sin that are separating us from your presence, God, that we're not enjoying your presence as we should. Lord God, I pray that for, for those in this room that have not accepted you as their Savior, God, that they would be convicted of their sinfulness. And today would be the day that they ask you to forgive them for their sins. And God, that you would enter their hearts and their lives. And that they would experience the joy that comes only through knowing you. God, I pray for all of us that as we go through this week, that we would be reminded of the great, great cost that was paid in order for us to be called the children of God. Lord, help us never to take that for granted. Lord, that we might live differently because of you and what you've done on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. This altar is open. If you want to do business with the Lord, if you want to talk to somebody, there's people here to do that with.
If you want to accept Christ as your Savior today, you may do that. Cry out to Him and He will answer. Let's sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.